Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, each and every one built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If you want to improve your playing, join me and thousands of other pickers getting better every day at pegheadnation.com. Hey folks, this is Marcella Dance, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. I have a guest for you on this episode, and it is Marcel Ardans, who's better known to most of you, I would imagine, as Marcel from Lessons with Marcel, uh, website and YouTube channel. Um, most of you will know Marcel, I'm sure, but if you don't, he, for the past six years, has run a great online community of bluegrass players. Uh, he teaches, he transcribes, he shows people how to play famous breaks from songs. This is just such a huge resource he's got there, um, and he teaches with such a sense of fun and i mean the content's great you just go and check some out if you don't know it already um we had a great chat covering all sorts of stuff we've got a bit of stuff in common we both started out as drummers um and both came to bluegrass a little bit later in life rather than being sort of brought up around it uh but yeah we cover all sorts of stuff from the mistakes we all make to you know the bluegrass community talk a bit about tony rice and our favorite guitar breaks just a great chat i had a a wonderful time talking to him he's a lovely guy and i hope you enjoy listening as much as i enjoyed recording it so here we go here's the interview with marcel so marcel thanks for joining me today this is great it's really good to talk to you um we have a thing in common we both started out playing drums rather than guitar and uh yeah that's right it's a cool thing and it's the one thing about learning drums first is it gives you rhythm that just sort of lives in your body and it's just there and you don't have to think about it. And it's a marvelous thing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I I actually find it one of the harder things to teach because it's something that I don't remember learning uh, how to count and how to feel rhythms. It's just, I feel like it's ingrained in me. Yeah. Yeah. My little boy's eight and he's taking drum lessons and um, he just wanders around playing drums on his body. And it's just, it's lovely to see because he's not even thinking about it. But in later years, whatever he wants to play, that'll just be there for him. That's right. Cool. So I had a little bit of a read about you this afternoon. Um, You grew up in South Phoenix on a farm. And it sounds to me like you spent a fair bit of time cutting your teeth playing in pit bands for musicals. Yeah, that that is very, very true. Um, That that, that was later. My family had moved to, to Washington State and... Yeah, when I moved out, you know, my only marketable skill was, was music, sight reading, and uh, and musicals were a great place to take advantage of that because they they essentially want you to come in a couple of weeks before the show and be able to read everything very quickly. You don't get as much rehearsal time as the actors, right? And uh, <laughs> so if you can't read fast, you know, there's no way you're going to memorize 80 songs, you know, 40 songs for each act. So you got to be able to read. Yeah, yeah. And everything you're doing is to support something else. Like, you're never in the spotlight. So it's probably a pretty good exercise in listening and, like, backing people right. up, I guess. And, you know, that that's something they favor, too. They favor uh, multi-instrumentalists, right? So if you play a little drums, a little guitar, a little piano, a little bass, well, they want you for the show because, depending on the song, there might be a little shuffling in the pit. You know, there's, like, five guys you know down there at max <laughs> more like three guys down there all all trying to cover all the parts at one time and 
uh, yeah, I got I got more jobs. Um, you know, just saying, hey, I can play the the bass parts and the guitar parts, depending on which song you want me to do them for, than anything else. Yeah, I remember Brian Sutton saying something very similar about being a utility player. And he's obviously known as a guitarist, but he covers a fair few instruments, and it's he gets a lot of calls just to you know be the one guy with four or five things. That's right. That's right. So, so how did you sort of transition into bluegrass? Was it pretty early on in your life you got into it? How did you first hear it? <laughs> no, it was not early on in my life at all. Um, despite you know growing up on a farm, uh, my family did not listen to any bluegrass. Um, we we did listen to a lot of acoustic music. We listened to a lot of like Jim Croce, a lot of James Taylor, a lot of Cat Stevens. Those are all artists that that I grew up on. Um, but it, it wasn't until I was already 19 or 20 that I started hearing bluegrass for the first time. And, and I lived with these, with these guys that were kind of music snobs. They were music nerds and, uh, they, they would always try to one up you. So, you know, for instance, if you said, Hey, I, I really like, you know, Hound Dog. I like Elvis Presley. They'd be like, Oh, you got to listen to, you know, Big Mama Thornton sing Hound Dog. You know, they throw it back and they throw it back yeah, yeah. and they throw it back. And eventually that, that happened with bluegrass. Um, I can't remember the tune, but yeah, someone was eventually, you know, like, Hey, you got to listen to so-and-so's version of this. You know, it's like the authentic original. And I heard it and I was like, Oh, what is this? I got to learn how to do this. And it, it just consumed my whole life. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the UK listening to the Beatles and Iron Maiden and bluegrass was not on my radar, but you know, once, once it gets in your ear and you start digging in a bit, there's, you can keep going forever, can't you? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, was it guitar that you sort of grabbed hold of first when you were learning bluegrass? Was that your your sort of first choice? Yeah, at the time, you know, honestly, I was making more money in the in the musical scene playing drums and bass. Um, it's what I got asked to play a lot more. Uh, but there were moments, there were productions like uh, Greece, where I'd be asked to play guitar. Um, I think we did a production of High School Musical where I played guitar as well. Uh, there, there would be, you know, a handful of productions where they'd ask me to play guitar, but most of the time it was drums and bass. And um, so when I found bluegrass, it was kind of an excuse to play the instrument that I preferred. I wanted to play more guitar, and uh, my other skill sets, you know, uh, d- didn't transfer as well. I'm not going to play piano in a bluegrass band. I'm not going to play drums in a bluegrass yeah. band. I guess it has to be guitar. And and honestly, I wasn't much of a, a lead guitar player either. Um, I was mostly a rhythm guy. I mean, I could, I could fake a lead here and there, and you know, play some pentatonic scales. But I, I wasn't known as a lead guitar player, so it took a lot of, took a lot of woodshedding for me to build that skill set <laughs> to to come off as a bluegrass guitar player. It's probably a pretty cool cool way to have it around, though, isn't it? So many bluegrass players learn like lead and nothing else, and then they find themselves in a jam, and you've got to play ninety five percent backup. So if you can play the rhythm, that's got to be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's right you know a lot of players you know start with like uh you know like their a minor pentatonic blues stuff first too and i didn't have that experience i i never played blues the the, the only time i started working on my blues was after i was working on bluegrass and i was like oh everyone else can play blues i i should work on that too <laughs> and so you made the switch from kind of playing in pit bands into like then playing some bluegrass and how did you then go from that into teaching well um i really wanted to be uh, a music teacher um and when i was playing in, in pit bands 
it was essentially because I couldn't get into uh, I couldn't get into uni. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> I, I couldn't get uh, uh, I couldn't get accepted, and it, part of it had to do with the uh, audition process and and my hearing loss, and and I just couldn't make that happen, and so. I ended up, you know, calling up my friends and saying like, hey, what'd you learn today? You know, I'll give you 20 bucks, come over to my house, teach me what you learned at school. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was kind of getting my, my, my teaching and, and music education on the, on the side secondhand. And so it, it made sense. Ultimately, what I wanted to do was teach music. And I just came at it from a weird angle, I guess. Yeah, I guess uh, like with music like bluegrass, so many people do learn it from other people rather than you know, it's a, it's a social music and it's handed down and passed on, isn't it? That's right. And I, I think it, it kind of had a, a, an effect on my approach uh, where uh, I, I am kind of an analytical guy. If you if you watch my YouTube videos, I get yeah, into I had, the I had that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I think it's because I was doing that. You know, I was getting this like secondhand theory education and I'm applying it to bluegrass, a music that you're quote unquote not supposed to do that with. And I think it, it it primed me to be a teacher, you know, of this genre. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's all useful stuff, isn't it? I think uh, I think people there's there's sort of two schools of thought with with theory and with learning, and some people have this misconception that if you learn more stuff, it's going to somehow hamper your creativity and your authenticity. And it's like you could, it's speaking a language you can know thousands and thousands of words, but you can still choose to say something really blunt and simple when you want to as well. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can always, you can always just turn that switch off. And honestly, when I'm playing shows, that switch is always off. <laughs> you know, when I'm sitting down with other people playing, I'm, my theory brain isn't on. Uh, I, I like your language metaphor. Perhaps the, the word comfortable and everyone says comfortable <laughs> is a good example. Yeah. You can pronounce it correctly, but you, you normally don't, I bet. <laughs> Yeah, and we all know loads of clever words, and but we tend to use the same ones over and over again because they can, because they connect with other people. And music, like, you, know, you can take the metaphor too far, but music as a language and music as a conversation is about communication more than anything, rather than well, yeah. it should it should be for some people it's about showing you what they know, but for most people it's a conversation, and you want somebody to hear you and understand you. Yeah, you're 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 potentially missing the point if you're if you're not communicating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally and it's you know i think there's something um i can't remember which of your videos it was on it might have even been the ask me anything video that you put up but um so you you made this point about people asking you how to improvise and how to create variations and your point was that when you start out successful variations are more important than cool variations and it's that idea of just being able to participate in the conversation and keep the conversation i guess it's like playing tennis you need to get the ball back before you start hitting winners because if you don't get the ball back you're not in the game <laughs> that's right yeah and um when i when i think about when i was going to my first bluegrass jams and playing with other people that's what it was all about for me i was thinking hey can i get to the end of my break <laughs> can, I, can i finish my break rather than will it be a cool break or a novel break like can i just do it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and sometimes i didn't <laughs> but sometimes and, i did and, and sometimes we all don't and that's that's part of the learning process isn't it is learning what to do when you don't and um, is, I, think yeah. that's the, I think that's one of the hardest things for people who are learning sometimes, I think, is that idea of um, getting from being a player to being an improviser. And it's it's a whole 
skill set isn't it and it takes time and it's you know we're all most of us still on that journey i'm a i'm you know it's a, a daily thing for me working out how to do that but it's it's something that you do and can teach so you have videos that show people how to take the concepts of improvising starting from i don't know maybe just having a constant stream of notes through to how you structure things and we'll be right back with you just after this Collings Guitars has been a long-time supporter of the bluegrass community, from collaborating with artists to sponsoring festivals big and small, and now by sponsoring Bluegrass Jam Along. Handmade in Austin, Texas, every Collings guitar and mandolin that leaves the shop is built from the sound up, and the team loves seeing a Collings in the hands of players of all levels, from local musicians to world-renowned pickers. Visit collingsguitars.com for more. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. With 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music, Peghead Nation is something for every picker. You'll learn the tunes and techniques you need to join in at jams and play the music you love, plus advanced techniques like improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 per month and you can add more for $10 a month. Sign up for any course and get your first month free with the promo code JAMALONG, all one word. Join thousands of other players, including me, who are advancing on their instruments and having more fun playing the roots music they love at pegheadnation.com. Yeah, there's, um, it's, it's a weird thing too. I, I find that a lot of people, um, let's say adults, a lot of adults are concerned about the, the quality of the things that they improvise. And so they, they shoot themselves in the foot before they ever even get started. Um, so, you know, if you have a phrase and you want to create a derivative version of it, you want to create a new version of this phrase that has all the same components, um, you can't be worried about the quality of all the derivative versions. You just have to pump out all the derivatives. Uh, that's much more important than, than thinking, hey, is this going to be good? You you can really stalemate yourself um, and not get anywhere. Yeah, and, and sometimes, as as with conversation and language, the, the, most, the things you find you like most are things you said that you weren't planning to. And they come out and you hear them and go, oh, that's cool. Oh, I better remember that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I'd much rather uh, find ideas like that, uh, you know, just like a, a casual inspiration, like, oh, wasn't that unique, rather than sitting down and, and composing, right, and saying, what if I moved this note here? What if that was this? And what if this happened instead? That's less interesting to me than the in-the-moment, you know, inspiration. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point about like particularly um like adults getting in their own way a bit too much and and i do that you know i i'm not uh i'm not brought up in the bluegrass tradition i'm not even you know brought up in the u.s um and so for me i'm my sort of little internal monologue is always oh you don't sound bluegrass enough you don't sound bluegrass enough and actually i sound like me like channeling a bit of bluegrass and a bit of other stuff and and the idea is to find your sound and but i'm constantly just listening to myself playing going that's not bluegrass enough that's not bluegrass enough and we can easily trip ourselves up before we even get the guitar out of the case can't we that's that's a really interesting thing that you bring up i i feel that way too um i felt that way for a lot of my bluegrass journey and i've always considered the the, the greatest compliment I can receive is uh, authenticity. When people say things like, you're the real deal, or you sound like, you sound authentic, you sound like, you know, my grandfather used to play. 
when when people say those things to me, it makes me want to cry. I'm like, you know, I finally feel validated in some way. Like, oh, I finally finally made it somewhere in this tradition. They don't even have to be other musicians. <laughs> it's just other people that say it sounds real. It makes me yeah, happy. Yeah. I think it's that part of that human desire to belong, isn't it? I mean, part of the reason I do this podcast is I'm so disconnected from so much of what goes on in the world of bluegrass like this is a, an opportunity for me to be part of it as well and i think it's that you know we all want to fit in we all want to belong we want to be part of something and bluegrass particularly is the kind of music you can be part of it's not about being cool and being on the outside it's you know it throws its arms wide and says come on in <laughs> you know we were just talking uh, i did a live stream right before we talked and on the live stream i was talking with my chat and um they, we ended up talking about this event I used to run. It was called Marcel's Bluegrass Night. And it was a, a local um, stage jam, right? You'd have to get on stage and play into microphones, but it was essentially a jam. It's unrehearsed. And um, I started that event before I had any right to start that event. I started that <laughs> right as a maybe, you know, uh, high tier amateur. And uh, the reason why I started it was because I wanted all the, the local bluegrass musicians to come out and, and to school me. You know, I wanted to get, uh, I wanted to fall face down in the mud and be like, oh, I don't know that tune, but we're going to play it anyway. Or, oh, I really didn't good, do good on that break, but give me another one. You know, I wanted to keep having that, uh, that struggle. And it was other musicians bringing new material to the table that would do that. So I essentially created my own forum uh, and invited everyone to come teach me <laughs> under the guise of this public event. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's great. I mean, you know, the, the times you learn stuff are when you're not the smartest person in the room or you don't know the most in the room and you listen. You know, it's, that's, that's, right. that's how we get stuff, isn't it? That's how more stuff comes in. I love, it's um, the, I love it's the opposite of, uh, of being drunk. You don't want to be the drunkest person in the room. <laughs> but you do want to be you know the the less talented player in the room <laughs> yeah totally totally and because otherwise you're not you know you're not learning anything so, so do you find because obviously you know teaching you teach lessons on skype and zoom as well as teaching via youtube and that's very much mm -hmm. a two-way thing do you, how do you find with the youtube is it is it i guess the community sense of it and doing the live streams and hearing from people and getting the feedback is that what sort of keeps it two-way yeah, it's, um, it's kind of an interesting thing making content for YouTube. Um, I think the best piece of advice I ever got, and you know what finally made it click to me, was that you have to, um, you, you have to personify your audience. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you might have uh, maybe a guitar channel where you're talking and you think, hey, my, my audience is this complete beginner. You might even name them. My audience is Tom. Tom, Tom has held a guitar for 30 seconds in his life and I'm going to help him. And so my audience is, you know, you know, like this Dave character, Dave's, you know, maybe in his thirties, forties, you know, he might have a couple kids. He's played guitar before. He knows a little bit of theory, but you know, he's ready to get serious about bluegrass. <laughs> That's my audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and now I know whenever I make a video, like I'm talking to Dave <laughs> <laughs> it's classic sort of marketing persona rules isn't it is you know talk try and talk to a person rather than talk to everybody because if you can That's get right. that right and it clicks then if and you know youtube and podcasts are a very personal intimate one-on-one -on -one kind of thing so you can really do that and i just decided you know i started this podcast thinking 
in lockdown, it was going to be for people who couldn't get out to go to a jam and they'd have something to jam along with at home. And actually turns out that a big bit of it is people who haven't got the confidence to do that yet anyway. And they're sitting at home playing along with these podcast tracks as a way of trying to build up the confidence. Because it's terrifying, that first thing of going, I can play four tunes, but how do I sit in a room with people and play them probably slightly faster than I know how to? And, you know, with all the jitters and all the nerves and it's, you know, getting out and playing with other people is where it all becomes real, isn't it? Yeah, and, I, you know, I don't want to give the advice that everyone gives, but, you know, let me just say that yeah, all of those people at that jam have all fallen on their face, too. They've all been in that circumstance where, where this is very difficult. It's an uphill battle, and they're trying to figure out how to improvise or how to play that quickly or whatever quality you're talking about. So when you when you go in and you, you bury your belly, <laughs> you know, you show that you're struggling with this thing, too. They're not, there's not going to be hatred for you. There's not gonna, they're not going to look down upon you. They're going to remember, hey, I remember what it was like to be that guy. And most of the time, they help you. Um, when I think about positive and negative jam experiences that I've had, you know, as different levels of a player as I've grown, um, they've been overwhelmingly positive. Overwhelmingly positive. There's so many people that have come up to me and said, like, hey, I like what you were trying to do, but maybe that's not the kind of tune that you would do that in. And as a beginning player, like, that was wonderful information to hear. Thank you so much for telling me that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think you often get at a jam, you get um, the the sort of breaks that get the most response are often people who are having a go and not quite getting there rather than the people who are really nailing it because people want to encourage them. They want them to, you know, be there in a year's time playing something new. (laughs) That's right. I tell the story all the time, but there's there's one break that's burned into my brain that I played, and I was playing guitar for kind of a bluegrass singer songwriter in town. We were playing at a, a local brewery, and, um, and I was playing this uh, this break over some kind of non traditional chord changes, and I was kind of struggling. I worked myself into a weird corner, you know, and I had to get out, and and I kind of sweat through it. I was like, when it was over. I wiped my forehead and, you know, thank God it worked out. And the audience just erupted. Everyone clapped. And it it was like this click in my head. I was like, oh, they saw. They saw my whole journey. They saw me sweat. And they liked it. (laughs) Yeah, people like this idea that, people like this idea that, you know, I I think definitely with bluegrass, there's, uh, it's, it's a down-to-earth sort of thing. And if you go to a festival, you can meet the people you've just seen on the stage or they'll be doing a workshop in a little tent around the corner. Or the, there isn't that sense of there are rock gods and there are audience and the audience will never be the rock gods. It's like we're all just the same people at different stages on the same journey almost. Like most of us will never get as far as Billy Strings or Chris Thiele, but we are essentially on the same journey and we can somehow relate to that. That's true. That's that's exactly right. It's It's also a funny dynamic. I mean, at least here in the States, when you uh, when you when you go to a bluegrass festival, there there'll be people that know so much about the artists on stage. You know, I've I, I've been in an audience and seen someone playing on stage. They're playing a new song on an album they just put out, and the guy next to me says, ah, "I played that lick on the last record," and that's remarkable. <laughs> I mean, how how many how many concerts could you go to and have someone just so knowledgeable that immediately calls out, "Hey, that was the thing you played on the last record." Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, the audience is almost like uh, whether or not the audience has made it to that level, they're kind of pushing the bands to to experiment and to go further as well. And it's got to be one of the genres of music where like a high proportion of people in the audience are also instrumental 
players themselves. They must, you know, compared to the average rock group, there'll be a lot of people who want to be, but. I mean, when you when you're when you're at a, a bluegrass festival here in the states, it's it's kind of weird to to meet someone who doesn't play or or doesn't have a family member that plays. Um, you know, if you're just standing in a crowd of people, you could turn to the person to your left and say, "Hey, what do you play?" And they're like, "Ah, oh, I play mandolin." <laughs> you know, that's that's why they're there. They're also a player. It's it's rare to meet someone who's just a just a fan, which maybe reflects poorly on the genre, but it's true. <laughs> No, I don't know. I think it reflects really well on the genre. It sort of feels like everybody's part of it. I think that's got to be a good thing. That's got to be a good thing. Um, so, I guess like one of the the things this brings up with with teaching and encouragement and just how people get through all this stuff. What are the things that you've learned, particularly from the last six or so years of doing lessons with Marcel, um, about about how people learn and how to convey musical ideas and help people through some of that stuff is there a difference there must be quite a big difference between how you teach an individual on a skype lesson versus how you construct some content that's going to be seen by you know tens of thousands of people that's right yeah that it's it's a pretty uh broad net that you cast when you make a youtube video and you'll you'll never satisfy everyone but uh but one-to-one when i'm talking with people i find that a lot of our conversations revolve around um, how you hold things in your mind, like how you how you balance all the things that you have to be thinking about. Um, and it, it, there's a great example I have. There's a student I have who's um, who's blind. His name is Justin, and uh, he's an excellent player. He has a great ear. And uh, whenever we talk, I can't give him tab. I can't give him sheet music. I can't give him yeah, of lesson materials. Right. He has to hold it in his brain. And so uh, a lot of our lessons end up being this conversation about how you think about it rather than how you might play it, which is interesting. Um, An example maybe for the people at home is how you view chord changes in your head. Um, So a lot of people um, think about songs and they think like, it's kind of a long G chord and maybe there's a a short C chord. There's a longer G chord again. Maybe there's an F. I'm describing red-haired boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you you might lay it out in your head like that, and I find that that's not very useful. Um, to when you when you start carrying around more and more tunes, it's not a very useful way to think about it. Well, yeah. you know, imagining well, it's kind of a long chord, it's kind of a short chord. <laughs> Eventually, that breaks down. Um, so, one easy way to hold that information in your brain is to imagine um, four boxes. You have four boxes, you have four boxes, four boxes, just stacked vertically up and down in your brain. And you just drop the chords into those slots of where they appear. And that tends to help people much better than anything else. Uh, if you're if you're not already visualizing chord progressions like that, like for instance, let's do one. If I had to do like rolling in my sweet baby's arms, my first row would all be G, 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 G. My second row would be G, G, D, D. My third row would be G, G, C, C. My last row would be D D G G. Um, that that makes it so much easier for me to carry around a million tunes. Um, but people don't think about that. I I see tons of players that are just like, yeah, rolling my sweet baby's arms, kind of a long G chord, and eventually it goes to a D. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because like for the, I was thinking about that for the podcast, I put chord sheets up for all the tunes on the website, and I started off putting them up as kind of writing them out that way and writing, you know, sticking the bars in, and then sort of G slash 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 C slash slash slash. And then somebody said, can you also put them up in the national number system? Because I'm a banjo player and I want to be able to move things around a bit. And 
And then you do that and you, you put the number every beat. You don't put it once in the bar, three slashes. You put one, 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 five, 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 or whatever. And it's it's just super clear, isn't it? It is. It's really clear. The The Nashville number system is also a great one, too. Um, if you're looking for a way to think about that in your head, folks at home, I would I would count on my fingers. So if you start on your thumb and you put your root chord there, for instance, if it's G, you just go through your musical alphabet, G, A, B, C, D. You have G, C, and D on your thumb, your ring finger, and your, your pinky or your little finger. Um, and the interesting thing is that for all the keys in bluegrass, you won't get any trouble with any sharps or flats. It'll, it'll always work <laughs> out because we don't play any of those chords. <laughs> so, you know, for G, C, D, you know, E, A, it's always going to work out. Um, that's a quick way to do that math if you if you don't already have a way to do it. Yeah, it's cool, and I think that's it. I think um, like there's so much material out there now. If you want to learn to play guitar, there there's no shortage of resources. But teaching is maybe a little bit about curating some of that and and describing the ideas. Like you say, it's not you, anybody can tell you what the notes are, but it's it's giving people a way to hold that in their head in a way that makes sense to them and. And also particularly with the one-on-one stuff, I, I'm an artist work student. I get lessons from Brian Sutton and I signed mm-hmm. up for it, you know, thinking, yeah, it's all going to be about licks and flash stuff. And, uh, you know, nearly all of it is about creating a good sound, creating good tone, making music that sounds good to people and layering the rest of the stuff on top of it. And that's the stuff that I never would have got watching, you know, going through my tab books or watching DVDs in the old days or, you know, you that, just that, somebody right. to present it to you like i mean and you can do that on youtube as well but distill the ideas and present them rather than just here's the material makes such a difference you know the 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 tone thing i love that you bring that up uh you know not enough people talk about that i don't talk about that enough um i, I think mostly because I'm, I'm trying to give people the courage like you to to go out and jam and be part of the community um but the, the actual tonal production of your instrument is a huge deal um, and it's actually one of the things that, that, that creates like a night and day difference when you're playing with other people. Um, I, I notice, uh, for instance, I was, I was just at my, uh, like guitar repairman guy, my luthier, his name is Jeff Huffman. He makes great guitars. Um, I was at Jeff Huffman's place and my friend, Alan Barnowski, who writes for acoustic guitar magazine was also there. So the three of us, all guitar players were sitting down playing and, uh, you know, me and Alan are playing our hot licks and doing our cool things. And uh, Jeff's tone was just so much better than ours. And I, it, <laughs> no matter what guitar he was playing, I couldn't help but just hear how good his tonal production was. And, you know, Jeff has been playing forever. He's got stories about meeting Tony Rice in the 70s and all that. But, um, you know, no matter what Jeff played, it sounded better than what I played because, because his tone was so good. It's funny. Yeah, and I, I, years ago, I had a... I had a short stint at trying to be a steel guitar player and I had a few lessons from a British steel player called BJ Cole who is incredible and um, he'd sit down on my sort of 600 pound starter pedal steel and make it sound like the best instrument in the world and I would sit down at his best instrument in the world pedal steel and make it sound like a 600 pound starter guitar and it's you know and that's an electric instrument it's not an acoustic instrument but like the the tone people just you know I think a good player you can give them pretty much any instrument and they can sound like themselves on it that's right yeah it's it, it's kind of a, a funny trap for uh for, for beginner players to to fall into you know everyone's talking about which guitar should i buy you know what, what kind of this do i need what kind of that do i need 
when uh, it's to some extent kind of not about that, right? If you're if you're doing everything correctly, you can get a great sound out of most instruments. Now, if you have a 300 year old guitar with super high action and everything, yes, by all means, go get a new guitar. But <laughs> but if you have something that's workable, you could probably you know work through that struggle a little bit and get a good sound out of that instrument. It's hard to buy a bad guitar nowadays. <laughs> Do you know, it really is. I'm, my guitar is an Eastman, and it costs me £370 secondhand, and it sounds incredible. Um, it's, yeah. You know, and you think back to the first guitars I owned, and they used to physically injure me. And this is, you know, it's a really well-put-together guitar that's got a great sound, and it's, you know, it's a cheap guitar, really. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, it it is amazing i i that's that's one very nice thing about starting to play now if you go out and get an instrument it's gonna play better than you know even what people you know 20 years ago had to start on <laughs> yeah, guitars yeah. nowadays are they all play well they do and i i've heard i've heard a couple of people say in recent weeks um things i've read and things i've been watching that actually if most people invested more money in lessons and less money in gear and trying different picks every week and trying different strings every week get a decent pick get a decent guitar get some decent strings and then spend your money on a teacher it's it's funny to me that uh that a lot of the equipment too in bluegrass it boils down to like one or two choices um i mean admittedly a lot of them are expensive choices but you know we can say blanket statement lots of people like martin guitars <laughs> stay blanket statement everyone's playing a blue chip or a wigan you know uh for capos uh, everyone likes the elliot capos i know those are all expensive things they aren't you know super affordable but uh the 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 equipment question it's kind of already been answered we know what yeah, the best yeah. equipment is we we all kind of use the same equipment you know well, so with that in mind, what what do you play? What's your sort of? Do you have a main guitar, or do you tend to move between a few? I do. So when I'm playing um, uh, for videos and stuff, I tend to play this guy. I'm showing you the the people at home can't see, but it's a <laughs> 1967 um, Martin D35. Um, it's actually my my friend's grandfather's. It belongs to Grandpa Arthur. Cool. Uh, Grandpa Arthur has has a sort of lent it to me on indefinite loan. They'll, the family will never sell it to me, um, but it's, it's just become mine. <laughs> uh, I've, I've tried. Cool. Um, yeah, it's a lovely guitar. Um, it's, it's not my gigging guitar, but I play it all the time. My I mean, I gigging guitar... Why. Sounds good. <laughs> my my gigging guitar is uh, a Martin uh, DC Aura. It's a very weird model, um, but it's got the the Aura pickup system in it, which which I really enjoy. It's got a compressor built in. It's got the EQ built in. It's got a bunch of different microphone images built in, so I can cycle through different um, different sounds on the fly. It's a wonderful and guitar. And does it have a cutaway as well? Yeah, that's the one with the cutaway. That's it. Yeah, yeah. How do, I mean, do you get a bit of stick for playing a cutaway guitar and playing bluegrass? Because people can be very traditional oh. about these things. <laughs> I definitely do. Um, and uh, you know what? Everyone everyone backs off when I tell them the story about how I got that guitar. Um, so oh, I'll tell you. Um, so I was... Uh, I, I had a gig coming up. I think it was a wedding gig. A gig coming up. And 
my Martin that I had at the time, uh, the top and the back were separating from the sides. So I was getting this natural distortion, <laughs> you know, this rattling yeah. sound. <laughs> and, uh, and so I had to, I had to get a new guitar. And so in my desperation, I'm going to all the guitar stores looking for something. And, um, I finally found, uh, at a guitar center of all places, I found this beautiful Martin. Of course it had the cutaway, but I loved the way it sounded. And I looked at the tag and I was like, I don't think that's what this guitar is. And then I look in at the, you know, the neck block and it says custom. It's from the custom shop. And so I realized that this guitar is labeled incorrectly and they're selling it for a price that's a couple thousand dollars less than what it should be. Wow. (laughs) And so I, (laughs) you know, I went up and I was like, yeah, I'll take this one. And the guy went into the back and he's like, you know, it's so weird. I'm looking at the tag and I can't find the case that goes with it. (laughs) And I said, oh, it doesn't matter. Give me any case. Any case will be fine. They sold it to me. I walked out the door. And so, yeah, I get a little bit of guff from people saying that, you know, you shouldn't play guitar with a cutaway. But when they hear that I got it, you know, for 60% off, (laughs) they understand. Well, and people will tell you you shouldn't play an ovation until you point out that Tony Rice used to play one. (laughs) That's right. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of, it crops up every now and again on the Facebook groups and um, people's incredulity that you know Tony Rice played an ovation <laughs> and sounded like Tony Rice. <laughs> you know they great. really like the sounds of those ovations. When you talk to them, they they treat it almost like it's a um, like it's its own instrument. You know, it's kind of a a different sound. And I think part of it has to do with the. Um, but the like mixing when they were recording those albums. So they did a lot of um, like, I, for instance, Manzanita. I think Manzanita has played on an ovation guitar. Um, but depending on the the mix that you're trying to get, um, the ovations tend to be a little less boomier than a Martin. So it's almost like this thing has already been low cut. You know, so if you mm-hmm. go into the recording studio, you want your lead to cut more. You want some of the bass taken out of your instrument. The ovation already does that. Or say say you have a really active bass player and you want to play your rhythm part and you don't want the low frequencies of the guitar to mix with the bass, maybe grab the ovation. Maybe that would be good for the rhythm part. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how they used it. You know, it like did a different job. I mean, I guess, you know, particularly if you're playing with more than one guitar and everybody's got a D28, they're all going to occupy the same sort of space. So if you've got something that's got a different voice, it's going to shine out a bit. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to think about because ovations are, are uh, an eternal joke now. But yeah, they really like those things. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, talking to Tony Rice, I guess, brings me on to, you've transcribed a whole load of Tony's licks and breaks, um, and a whole load of other, I mean, you've probably lost count of how many solos you've transcribed now. Um, Do you have a favourite bluegrass guitar break of all time? Man, that's a hard question. Um, I can give you a minute to think about it, and I'll tell you my answer if you like. (laughs) So, one of my... No, go ahead. Oh, no, you go go ahead. I was just going to say I was going to give you a bit of thinking time, but um, both my favourite guitar break and my favourite mandolin break are on the same tune, and it's um, Tony Rice's I've Waited As Long As I Can. I just think the solo on that is just brilliant. It's got a bit of all the things that make Tony, Tony. Is I've Waited As Long As I Can, is that on uh, Plays and Sings? Plays and Sings Bluegrass? Is it? That's a good question, because I first heard it on a compilation, so I get confused, because I always hear something else after it in my head and I get lost as to which album it's on but yeah it's it's just got the best solo the the only reason I bring it up and I might be wrong you know people can look it up but the uh, the the album plays and sings bluegrass Tony plays 
a lot of weird stuff despite it being like a you know him playing traditional bluegrass on that record that record has a lot of like bizarre tony licks on it so it's a it's kind of a lot of people's favorite uh i know it's trey hensley's favorite bluegrass record um it's one of mine too um i was gonna say that one of my favorite tony breaks is um on the tune uh shadows um there's this really really um beautiful thing that he does uh right at the beginning of the break uh and maybe one of the reasons i like it so much is it kind of confounds me to to like put it on paper The, the very first three notes are almost like a quarter note triplet starting off the beat it's this very like uh, it kind of just washes over you. It's like this waterfall effect as the break starts, and it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. And uh, if anything, it just shows like how interesting his time is. Like The feel on the beginning of that break is just remarkable. Uh, and he plays all kinds of just gorgeous, beautiful things on that. It's lovely. It's not, it's not a hot break by any means. It's just a beautiful break. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. I'm going to stick a link to that track in the show notes so people can go and listen to it too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's the, I mean, it's the thing with, you know, listen to tony rice and the time because it all because everything feels so rot like everything was a choice that no other choice could have possibly been made it all sounds so in its place that you like sometimes you don't even think about the time because it's it's just so lyrical and fluid or even when he's playing quickly he's playing hard it's just like the time is incredible it's kind of like um it's kind of like when artists uh, play with uh, proportions of items. And they can give you a really interesting perspective on something by playing with proportion. Um, but if you sit and think about it, you know that that's not what the item or the person actually looks like. Um, you know, they talk about like uh, uh, the Statue of David, um, how like the, the hands are much larger than they should be. But yeah. uh, when you're looking up at it, it all makes sense, right? It feels very proportional. And that's kind of what Tony's rhythm does. It uh, it kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes he's rushing and sometimes he's laying back. And it's it's more than just playing in time. He's playing around the beat in such a nice way that it can just be gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. and that's one of the things that um, that I, I sort of picked up most listening to a lot of the tributes to Tony and the various sort of conversations on Facebook and the various things. But like the amount of people who mentioned his rhythm playing more than his lead playing. And and the transitions between his lead and rhythm as well, and just sort of that sense that the same way people talk about Placido Domingo on an opera stage is that he just ups everybody else's game by fifty percent just by being there and doing what he does. Yeah. Just brings more out of everybody else as well, and that's a beautiful thing to hear about a musician. There's a great uh, little uh, like Q and A that uh that's on youtube so someone with like a handheld video camera in the 90s and maybe tony had just given a workshop or something but they're asking him candidly a couple questions and um i believe they ask him to to demonstrate some rhythm and he says oh i can't do that without a band here and i thought that was such an interesting statement for him to make and and i feel the same way now that i think about it like uh, i can teach you some basics of rhythm i can show you lots of different things that people do but rhythm is a, a reactionary element. It has to have other people yeah, yeah. for it to like um, sort of do what it's supposed to do. It's it's hard to do in a vacuum. Um, so <laughs> it's funny That's that really you know true. the thing that, that Tony's most known for this thing, and someone's like, you know, hey, can you can you demo some of your excellent rhythm? And he's like, I can't do it unless there's so many people playing that it's hard to hear. 
It's true. And you put it like that. And I think it is really interesting because people think about rhythm as being right or not. You're either on the beat and in time or you're not on the beat and not in time. And I guess at first when you're learning to play, that's sort of an element of it. And you just have to learn to lock in. But once you've got it, you can wander wherever you want with it as long as you know what you're doing. That's right. And and that's that's what adds tension and feel and groove. You know, yeah. you go, even even sort of you go and watch a musician like Josh Ritter live, and like what Josh Ritter does live is just channels energy. You know, he's not a bluegrass player, but he's he, he always nearly every song will speed up at some point because he's just getting excited and taking you with him. And Doc Watson, like you hear the amount of guitar duets here, Doc Watson play, and when he comes in, it all speeds up a little bit because he's just yeah. pushing it forward, and it's great. You know, you don't sit there going, "Oh, that's not in time." You sit there going, "Oh, this is great. I'm going with this." <laughs> I love that feeling, man. I love um, specifically mandolin players out there. I love when mandolin players play a little bit ahead of the beat. Um, it it makes everything feel so good. Um, when I'm when I'm using jam tracks, uh, maybe the people watching know I'm a fan of Strum Machine. But when I'm using uh, jam tracks, if they allow me to shift where things are on the beat, a lot of times I'll you know maybe push that bass um, forward a little bit or that mandolin forward a little bit. So that way it always feels like it's rushing, uh, whether yeah, yeah. it actually is or not. You know, it feels like it's pushing ahead. It's a great feeling. And it's one of the um, the things, when I started doing this podcast, I was very conscious of the fact that there's lots of like better equipped people to do it than me in terms of there's many better guitarists out there than me. But what I realized was that because it, like, it is me and I'm playing and my rhythm is not perfect, that somebody jamming along is actually jamming along with an actual person playing and that you've got to be able to do and I'm not saying my rhythm's all over the place it's pretty good but it's not kind of if you line it up with a metronome it's not all going to line up and and that's part of it isn't it is learning to for music to breathe and play with other people to their internal clocks as well I remember um, uh, I remember uh, wanting to make this video uh, it's a longer video I made about cross picking and I kind of go into the history and talk about uh, George Shuffler, and I interview some people that are that are uh, sort of experts in that kind of playing. It's kind of a little bit of a different kind of video for me. And I remember when I was going to make it, I was talking to um, my friend Mickey. Mickey Abraham is one of the other teachers, uh, sort of on the Lessons with Marcel team. And um, and I told him, uh, you know, I don't think I'm the person to make this video. There's, there's probably someone who who knows more that should make it, and um, and Mickey told me he was like, well, you're the guy, you know, everyone, <laughs> you're you're the one who started this thing, so you got to be the guy. And he was like, what better way to to make this video than to be the person that doesn't know everything about it because you get to actually, you know, research it and learn it as you go. I think that's yeah. true for what you're doing here too. I mean, you're trying to help people that. Um, that, are, that are trying to get into this jam scene and trying to get into this music, well, you're also, you know, getting better and better at the music. It's great. You're you're exposing the journey while you're, you know, leading everyone. I think it's a great way to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true. I mean, I can't tell you how much better my rhythm playing's got <laughs> since I have to be able to produce a track every week, you know, often having yeah, to right. learn the tune. And, it's, you know, I, I would have spent all that time learning the melody and actually having to sit and make sure the rhythm playing's there. It's made such a difference to me. It's been great. It's not my own little accountability buddy. It's like having a teacher, you know, somebody to make yeah, sure you've done yeah. the work and check that you've done it. You know, speaking of this rhythm playing, um, I find that when I'm recording, uh, when I'm recording music, that the rhythm guitar part is one of the things that 
not only is it pretty quiet in the mix, it's one of the things that I keep iterating on. Um, for instance, if I'm going to multi-track something, like I'm going to have everyone record separately, um, I'll record my rhythm track first, and everyone tracks on top, and then I'll go back and I'll redo my rhythm part because now it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, I found that with a podcast. I'll record the rhythm track, then I'll record the the tune to the rhythm track, and then I end up putting them together as a performance track, and I'll often go back and re-record the rhythm track before I mix it. Yeah, that's right. Because like we talked about, that rhythm is is reactive, right? You're you're reacting yeah. to the situation, so it's it's hard to do in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I've I've loved this conversation. It's been a huge amount of fun for me. Um, I'm going to presume that most people listening to this are going to know who you are, but for people who are new to Lessons with Marcel, um, the website and the YouTube channel, where's a good place for people to start? Because you've got so much content. Where's a good place to dive in? <laughs> well, a great place to dive in is to go to the website, LessonsWithMarcel.com. And uh, if, you, if you navigate to the different pages on that website, we got a bunch of articles where you can learn about bluegrass guitar, some country guitar, some jazz. Uh, we got a videos tab, too, where we post all the YouTube content back on the website. And, of course, we have a bunch of transcriptions. Um, they're all separated into beginning, intermediate, and advanced. And some of them are breaks exactly how they are on the album. Some of them are fiddle tunes that we've arranged for different skill levels. Of course, there you can sign up for Skype lessons. I mean, there's... There's lots of things that you can do. <laughs> the website is probably a good place to start, though. Cool. So we'll put less, uh, links to that in the show notes and make sure everybody can find all that as well. Um, is there anything else you've got coming up? Anything else you want to chat about or plug while you're here? Well, I do want to say that uh, I do do uh, live streams on YouTube um, every Tuesday. Um, and we just changed the time. It's now um, 6 p.m. Eastern. So you you got to do a little bit of time zone math, potentially. But uh, <laughs> if you want to join us for a live stream, it's at 6 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays. And uh, mostly what it is is us taking suggestions uh, from the chat on what we want to transcribe. So it's a, it's a good opportunity for people who have a, a favorite break or a favorite recording, uh, whether you know it's an entire break or just a little snippet that you want to understand or you want to hear me talk about. I'll pull up the recording and I'll write it down and I'll tell you what I think about it. That's cool. I'll definitely be joining some of those. That's great. Well, thanks, yeah. Marcel. It's been it's been a blast talking to you. I really enjoyed it. No problem, man. Happy to be here. Cool. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it was a lot of fun to record. I could have happily chatted to Marcel for twice as long as that. Um, and yeah, it's just super, super fun. Um, if you want to find out more about any of the stuff we covered, go to the show notes and you'll have all the relevant bits and pieces there, links, um, details of how to find Marcel's platforms and all the stuff we talked about. Um, but that'll be it. I'll be back next time with another tune. I will see you in the meantime and happy picking. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.